0: planet watch big solutions to earth-sized problems i'm rachel ann goodman along with joe jordan and intern tommy martin today on the program is there life on mars and in our solar system Find out about NASA's efforts to seek out life on the red planet and the moons in our various solar system planets, and what that would mean if we actually found it. How is life on Mars helping us understand our own planet and its atmosphere better? In a moment, we'll talk with NASA Ames planetary scientist Carol Stoker about her research into life on these wonderful other worlds, plus science, notes, and phenomenon. Stay tuned for that and more right here on Planet Watch. And if you'd like to reach us and ask Carol a question, we are taking questions and comments right now via email. That's Watch at gmail.com. Once again, Radio Watch at gmail.com. As we always do, we'll start out with a short newscast of a little roundup of some planetary news that may or may not affect you personally, but is certainly um, taking the temperature of our planet and what's happening in science this last week. And to kick it off, Tommy has a story for us right now.
1: Yeah, um, the story is about a a synthetic soft tissue uh, which was made into a retina by a 24-year-old Oxford student and this new retina device could offer a new outlook on life for the visually impaired. The retina replica is made of soft water droplets known as hydrogels and biological cell membrane proteins. Designed like a camera, the cells act as pixels, detecting and reacting to the light to create a grayscale image. Before this discovery, rigid hard materials were the only option to create artificial retinas. Unlike these existing implants, the cell cultures are from natural biodegradable materials. Uh, These do not contain foreign bodies or living entities. With this new implant technology, not only more close, uh, (laughs) this technology not only more closely resembles the human body tissue, but also much less invasive, but is also much less invasive in helping treat degenerative eye conditions such as retinitis pigmentosa. Uh, metal retinal implants can be very damaging, causing inflammation and even scarring to, sensitive, uh, to the sensitive eye. Uh, working with a large replica, the Oxford team is trying to expand the function to include color recognition. The next steps include animal testing followed by a series of clinical trials on humans. So, yeah.
0: I guess if you had an eye implant and it dissolved, it wouldn't be a bad thing if it was part of uh, something natural that your body didn't reject.
1: Yeah, much better than a giant metal thing being forced into your eye.
0: Ooh, it makes me cringe just thinking about it.
2: Yeah, so the retina. The retina is actually the retina is actually uh, far more than the passive uh, screen that uh, we have often thought it might be. It actually does a lot of active pre-processing of data received by the eye from the outside world. So uh, if they're doing a synthetic one, uh, pretty sophisticated project, yeah.
0: Yes, indeed. Well, it turns out that for the past 20 years, oxygen in the world's oceans has been declining. Researchers at Georgia Institute of Technology looked at a historic data set of ocean information stretching back more than 50 years and searched for long-term trends and patterns, and they found that oxygen levels started dropping in the 1980s as ocean temperatures began to climb. Falling oxygen levels in water have the potential to impact the habitat of marine organisms worldwide, and recent years led to more frequent hypoxic events. That means with no oxygen that, that was leached out of the ocean that killed and displaced populations of fish, crabs, and many other organisms. Another news story related to that, um, which maybe gives us hope if you think in the complete geologic time scale, not in the human time scale... 200 million years ago, actually, um, nearly half of life on Earth went extinct. Uh, but since you can hear my voice right now, we know that Earth eventually revived. Scientists from the University of Tromsø, Norway, found evidence that the bedrock helped the Earth return to habitability by removing CO2. Scientists think an asteroid and volcanic avity. Activity caused the atmosphere to go above 1,000 parts per million of CO2, which caused the sea to lose oxygen and the Earth's surface to warm, causing mass extinctions. By studying that bedrock under the North Sea, scientists say a process of chemical weathering eventually removed that CO2 from the atmosphere by tying it up in the minerals in the rock, making the planet more hospitable again. This could have taken many thousands of years to occur after that 1,000 parts per million so some interesting research happening there deep under the sea that will Tell us more about what happened um, 200 million years ago. But back to the present, Joe.
2: Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, <laughs> that, that thing that Rachel just mentioned is actually part of uh, what's called the carbonate silicate cycle that has acted over billions of years to maintain a fairly, uh, not constant, but within reasonable ranges for life, temperature on the Earth. And, uh, you know, some people have talked about a Gaia System where life somehow almost magically acts to do that. But it turns out you can also explain the uh, rather even temperatures uh, simply by these mechanical processes that are uh, due in large part to the plate tectonics uh, of the Earth. You know, what we used to call continental drift, (laughs) the processes of rock uh, circulation inside the Earth. And we'll get to that when we talk a little bit later today about other planets. Um, Now, yeah, as Rachel said, getting back to the present. (laughs) Here we go. This is good news. Utilities are losing their battle against solar energy. <laughs> solar wins at the ballot box and in court. Rooftop solar energy is becoming a financially viable way for millions of U.S. consumers to generate their own electricity. And utilities are doing everything they can to kill the solar boom before it gains too much traction. Utilities in states sunny states, such as Florida and Nevada, as well as other states, such as Wisconsin have tried to undermine rooftop solar at the regulatory level and in ballot measures. As a reaction, voters have fought back and have beaten the efforts to squash solar energy. Despite utilities having spent $26 million to pass a referendum that would have undermined solar economics in the state of Florida, voters there rejected the utility referendum. The state now looks like it'll have a bright solar future. In Nevada, less than a year after the Public Utility Commission essentially killed the rooftop solar industry, residents overwhelmingly voted to break up Berkshire Hathaway-owned NV Energy's long monopoly in the state. Customers have to be given energy choice. ...meaning more solar in one of the country's sunniest states. And in the past, Wisconsin's tried to add fees to utility bills that would kill solar energy before it ever got started. But those attempts were rejected by the court. There's an important trend here for utilities and solar companies. When solar energy goes on the ballot or to the court, it wins. That should have every utility in the country running scared and maybe thinking of changing their business model... Because that gives millions of customers choice regarding their energy needs. So, anyway, there you go. Uh, more better later, hopefully.
0: Yes, indeed. Well, we're very excited uh, to have a guest with us here in studio from the esteemed NASA Ames Research Center. Carol Stoker is a planetary scientist with NASA Ames over the hill in—is it Mountain View? I suppose right.
3: Mountain View, yes. Yes,
0: in Mountain View, not too far from where our studios are right here. Carol has a broad range of interests and skills. Her most recent work has focused on developing instruments and robotic systems for space exploration and testing them in terrestrial analog environments. She's also keen on the search for life in our solar system, which has been um, a long-term quest. And I guess we'll start out by uh, appealing to everyone's uh, science fiction consciousness and realize that up until very recently, we thought there was life on Mars. I mean, very recently, as in 1920s, right? We had a war of the worlds shake the core of our beings, um, thinking they were actually invading. So, how did we get from there to here? Where was the evolution of social thought and popular culture's understanding, and where does it lead us when we get into the hard science a moment later? Into what gets prioritized in terms of the search for life? So, welcome. Thank you for being here first, and thank you for having me. This is,
3: for those of you who don't know, this is an incredibly spectacular location overlooking the beautiful coastline of Santa Cruz, and in a nice little lagoon right outside the door. So, it's a wonderful place. Um, the uh, The search for life on Mars is, as you said, it's it's actually following on uh, a many, many decades and and really hundreds of years of believing that Mars probably hosted life. Um, And that was based on the lack of data. (laughs) So uh, science always, you know, relies on data. So mythology and things like that don't. Um, Mars, of course, is the god of war in Greek mythology. Um, And so I think that there was a... um, As a consequence of that, there was always an association between Mars and uh, violence or or warlike things. Uh, Also, the fact that Mars is red, if you view it through a telescope, or even without a telescope, the star itself in the sky is slightly red. This is because the surface of Mars is not covered with a nice blue ocean like the the surface of Earth. It's covered with red dust, um, which is actually rust. So it's the color of rust and um but mars is our nearest neighbor and it is the most earth-like planet in our solar system so it's it's a logical place to look for life given that it's our uh sister planet so to speak
0: and it's also logical that people would think we could be invaded by little green men as it was always (laughs) the case right and and still you know there's just recent movie with matt damon you know where he goes to mars and tries to live there and Uh, we won't give away the ending but we we still have a fascination with going there being there Um, there's even this idea that maybe we could terraform which you know has the fantasy going that maybe we could you know mess up this planet and then go make a new one Um, that's kind of scary too I mean for me that's that's a little bit immoral to think about planet B as an escape valve for all the bad things we're doing to our planet and you said yourself people often propose this idea to you as a scientist
3: well um, people are interested in the um, <clears throat> modification of the climate of Mars, uh, and scientists are interested in studying that, uh, because the climate of Mars has changed over time. It's, it's now in a very deep ice age sort of state, but clearly in the past it was much more Earth-like, probably hosted an ocean, um, or certainly... Plenty of liquid water, if not an actual ocean, and there's all kinds of geological evidence that shows that. But now, what we have is a cold, dry desert. And um, so, why is that? And can it can that process be reversed to make it a more uh, more habitable for life, and potentially even human life? Uh, and NASA has plans, and for as long as I've my career, really has had plans that. Often don't become realities, but there's still plans of uh, exploring Mars with with people and having you know stations or um, bases or potentially even colonies on Mars. And there are even private individuals now who have their own plans to put colonies on Mars. I mean, Elon Musk, a California native who's uh, inventing the future in many different ways, his, himself wants to do that. So it isn't too far beyond plausibility that we will uh, eventually have humans living on the surface of Mars. It's
0: not going to take over for Earth.
3: <laughs> it's not going to be 11 billion people, you know, that are going to live on the surface of Mars, almost certainly.
0: And, and I just can't help but put out some strange irony that we can't even figure out how to slow the uh, changes to our own atmosphere that we're creating, much less... spend a lot of money you know creating a whole new atmosphere for another planet we haven't quite gotten a handle on our own yet so it's a lot of work to think about doing that for mars just that's my own editorial opinion and so joe i can tell is itching to jump in here but let me give out the email because i know you're going to want to ask carol questions she is the expert on life on mars and the search for it which we haven't found it yet by the way yeah. In case you're going to any movies nearby that might have claimed they found life on Mars. <laughs> Radioplanetwatch at com. Get your questions in early because often people get them in at the end and then we can't answer them because we aren't Mars scientists. Okay. <laughs> so, uh, Joe, you had a question.
2: Oh, just a couple little things taken off from what Carol was talking about. You all were talking about sending... Many people, you know, maybe a whole Earth's worth of people to Mars. Even one person, like Elon Musk, though, uh, there is this huge hurdle of getting fried on the way to Mars. You know, if something happens on the sun, which does happen once in a while, I mean, you've got to have... Really thick, lead, heavy stuff that's hard to launch, as far as I know, but Carol may have some updates on that. But while I'm at it, the other thing is, just speaking of colors, little green men and the red of Mars, the late, great Carl Sagan once told me, I met him when I was working at NASA Ames, that, um, well, the hemoglobin in your blood, you know, is made of iron, and uh, so, okay, they talk about Mars, the planet of war. Well, blood, like war, <laughs> um, you know, comes from that uh, the iron that's in the iron oxide, the rust on the surface of Mars. And that's the same thing that's in he- hemoglobin and imparting some of that color. Anyway.
0: Well, back to NASA, though. Is there a real uh, discussion of a, a human... Uh- Expedition to Mars right now, or is it really about probes and other exploration uh, machinery that we sent? We've sent rovers and things like that. Tell us kind of what the evolution of that and where we are at now.
3: So um, there's more than just a discussion. There is a, a there is a program to put humans on Mars within. In fact, uh, the Trump administration announced, as actually most Republican administrations the last three have announced that they pl- would plan to put humans on Mars in a time frame of now the 2030s. Um, so there is a program, and that program is uh, off to a start. There, The main thing that needs to be done to support that program is to build a big enough rocket. And uh, so there's a, a program in, uh, uh, in place right now which is actually doing development to build uh, a large enough launch vehicle to launch uh, crew to Mars. And, and we're talking about a size of crew of maybe four to six people. So it's not, uh, by any means, a, a colonizing kind of effort. It's a exploration uh, sort of effort. Sort of like the way that we went to the moon in the 1960s.
0: Is that exciting to you? Do you think you'll be around for that? Um, well, I have thought
3: many times in my life that I would be around for it. We actually had plans to put humans on Mars in the 1980s. And had we continued at the pace that we were at, and we had the big rocket then, at the big rocket that we built to, to go to the moon, the Saturn V. And uh, had we continued at the pace that we were at in the 1960s with people landing on the moon in the 1960s and continued... At that level of effort, we probably well would have had human landing on Mars in the 1980s. Hmm. And that was actually sort of when I started my career, and that was one of, definitely one of the things that drew me in. And I fully believed when I was a student that I would go personally to Mars.
0: I hope you still get that chance. If you get get to be friends with Elon Musk, it might happen faster. <laughs> um, so we're talking with Carol Stoker, a planetary science scientist from NASA Ames, and we're talking about the search for life on Mars and other planets. Let's talk about how you find it. How do we know it when we see it? And uh, how does that work? Tell us about some of the mechanics of looking and, and where we're at right now with that.
3: So there, there is an active NASA program to search for life on Mars. And it, this is a robotic rover program. And um, the, there are currently two rovers that are functioning on Mars today. Um, there's a smaller one and a bigger one. Um, and there is a plan to send a, a follow-on rover in 2020. Uh, the follow-on rover. So the the rovers that are there now have characterized the surface in these in the locations that they've landed. Of course, you can't characterize the entire surface with, you know, going in one place. Like it'd be like characterizing the Earth by coming to Santa Cruz, right? You might
0: or Nevada <laughs> Desert, for example. You right. think it was quite a different place, but... right?
3: So, but but they have found very strong evidence of there having been liquid water in the past and having been habitable conditions in the past. Now by the past, I mean like three to 4 billion years ago, a very distant past. So um, the NASA program that's funded at the moment plans to send this Rover in 2020, which will uh, go collect samples of rocks to be returned to earth and analyzed in laboratories to look for essentially fossil evidence of microbial life. So life at, at the period of time where the origin of life on earth occurred three to four billion years ago and that life would have been very primitive and would have been only single-celled and only microbes and because of the fact that it's very tiny you know uh, one micron size that's a millionth of a of a meter you know Um, it's very, very hard to, to fossilize that kind of life and find that kind of evidence. So the only hope for that type of, uh, finding that type of life or that history of life is really to bring samples back to Earth. And so that's what the program is focused on at the moment.
0: Do you have a way of sending an ice sample back? You said there's ice on Mars. Mm-hmm. Could they send it back in a capsule so that it still contains some moisture by the time it returned? So... Um, In principle, yes, but
3: there is a um, sort of a rule against doing that, which is um, the planetary protection rule. So, um, there's still a possibility that there is modern life on Mars, and that if if so, it's more than likely uh, in the ice icy regions that are in the north polar. Near the North Pole or in the ground ice, which surrounds the North Pole, over a huge area. I mean, the ground ice goes all the way down to <clears throat> as far as 39 degrees north latitude. So this is like mid-latitudes. And pretty much the entire northern Northern hemisphere of Mars, above 40 degrees north latitude, the ground is saturated with ice. So um, <clears throat> there's a... Uh, a prohibition on bringing back samples that might potentially contain life that could contaminate Earth. And this is called back contamination. So um, really, before we send people, it's really imperative that we determine for sure whether there is life on Mars now or not. Because if there is, we're very likely to bring it back. And and therefore, it's a risk to Earth. So
0: it's... Mm -hmm. Um, we wouldn't have much immunity to a virus that was living on Mars for you know, billions <laughs> of years, do you think? <laughs> um, <laughs> Might be So if it were a virus,
3: certainly. If it were an independent evolution of life, it's a pretty good uh, chance that there would be no interaction. Yeah. Um, but early in the history of, of Mars and Earth, they exchanged a lot of material. And in fact, there's a big collection of rocks on Earth right now that are from Mars. <laughs> and in fact... Um, in the in the 1990s, there was a big flap about uh, a scientist claimed to have found evidence of life in one of those samples from Mars, and there was a lot of investigation that went into, eventually, pretty much disproving that, or at least not proving that it was true. Um, it is still, it's still controversial, but most people think that it is not really evidence of life. But the point being that there has been exchange of material back and forth between Earth and Mars, and that exchange of material happened dominantly when Mars was much more like Earth than it is now. So there probably could have been cross-fertilization of life between Earth and Mars.
0: Fascinating. We're speaking with Carol Stoker, a NASA scientist. And Tommy, you had a one- Yeah, we got in?
1: a couple questions here. One about how all of the ice formed there in the beginning to become that kind of wasteland. And another about uh, ex- uh, extremely toxic chemicals on the surface of Mars. And if there was evidence of those toxic chemo- te- chemicals.
3: <laughs> okay, so let's take the water first. Um, so Mars and Earth had formed similarly. And um, and th- that process of formation is basically impact of uh, planetesimal debris that just hits each other and sticks together and eventually forms a planet. And some of that, it contains water. So eventually you have an inventory of water that's provided to the planet, and it comes in from these... Impacting initial planetesimals um, Mars and Earth both got a uh, an inventory of water that's somewhat similar I mean there, <clears throat> Earth had more because it's bigger you know Earth is quite a bit bigger than Earth, than Mars um, and Mars being further from the Sun it cooled more rapidly and, and because it's smaller it cooled more rapidly and it never apparently developed plate tectonics so um, the cooling was not, as, as it cooled, uh, atmospheric constituents combined with rock, as Joe was explaining earlier, and uh, became rock, essentially formed rock. And so you didn't end up with this thick atmosphere lasting for very long. So once you don't have the thick atmosphere, you no longer have a very substantial greenhouse effect. So it's the greenhouse effect on Earth that keeps the oceans liquid. Um... And on Mars, that greenhouse effect went away pretty early. So the water that was there, which was initially liquid, uh, ultimately froze. And now is primarily in this big block of ground ice that is in the northern hemisphere of of Mars. And the, the northern hemisphere of Mars is lower elevation than the southern hemisphere. And it almost looks like it's a big ocean basin with uh, the essentially the big block of continents in the south and the ocean basin in the north.
0: Fascinating. We're talking with Carol Stoker. She's with NASA Ames, and she's a planetary scientist who um, missed the boat on going to Mars, but that's possibly <laughs> not true. She might still get there. I'm Rachel Ann Goodman, and Joe Jordan's in the house here. We're going to take a very short break, and we will be right back with more of your questions at radioplanetwatch at gmail.com. This is Planet Watch. Stay tuned. We're back with Planet Watch. Thanks for tuning in for another fascinating program. Today, we're talking about the search for life in our solar system. And by that, we mean looking at Mars and a couple of other moons of some of the other planets. We're here with Carol Stoker, a NASA Ames researcher in planetary sciences whose specialty is this search. And we've been asking her tons of questions. You can join the fun at Radio Planet Watch. At gmail.com, if you have a question, we'll try to squeak it in before the end. And there was one other question asked about uh, toxic chemicals that we might find. Any um, idea of that? So, um, there have been a number of
3: investigations to determine whether there's things on the surface of Mars that is that are potentially uh, toxic. And in fact, the a mission that I worked on, called the Phoenix mission, um, was had an instrument called the Wet Chemistry Laboratory, which basically took Mars soil and analyzed it for the potential for toxic compounds. And uh, it turned out that there was one thing that was completely unexpected in the soil, which is potentially toxic, at least to human life, and that was a uh, chemical called perchlorate. Um, it's a chlorine chemical, and it's extremely oxidizing. And it is. Uh, it turns out that it is complex very often in terrestrial soil with nitrate. And it was common in, common in high abundance in the Atacama Desert in Chile, where there were big nitrate deposits. Mm. And in the uh, 1920s, the nitrates were dug out of the ground and were uh, spread all over the earth as fertilizer. And um, so we have groundwater in the United States that has a high percentage of perchlorate and perchlorate can cause thyroid cancer. So <laughs> it is, in fact, a, a risky compound to have around. And um, it also, uh, because it's a, a high, a very strong oxidant, it has a lot of implications for what's going on on the surface of Mars um, in a lot of different ways. It, it actually can lower the freezing point of water down to uh, minus 60 centigrade, which is... Um, about what the surface temperature of Mars is. So uh, now that is at the eutectic, meaning that that's the highest concentration of salt and water that you can put together. Um, and it uh, it also destroys, when you heat it up, it destroys organic compounds. So... Um, So that means
0: anybody going tomorrow is going to have to be super careful not to get poisoned by Uh, uh, by what's there. That's right. (laughs) Okay, good. Uh, Another danger uh, Joe wanted to bring out uh, real quick, and then we're going to move to the other sources of potential life in our solar system.
2: I asked it earlier to Carol, but just during the break, uh, we were ha- talking about it, uh, this issue of sending people to Mars across the great gulf of uh, interplanetary space, which is permeated by radiation from the sun. And how do we handle that hazard? I mean, that same hazard was when we went to the moon, but that only took a couple days each way. So
3: and what how about-
0: long would it take to get there?
3: So, um... Trips to Mars take, on the average, from the what's called the minimum transfer trajectory, um, six months. So that's sort of the minimum time. Six to nine months is what you're talking about for the people just on the cruise to Mars. So uh, if in that period of time there were a major solar flare, for sure they could get a lethal dose of radiation. So uh, the plans for interplanetary transit uh, cabins or you know crew quarters or crew uh, habitats must include a what you would call a radiation storm shelter. And mm-hmm. the way that you do that <clears throat> is you put the water and the food, um, and once you eat the water and food, something is going to come out the other end. You have to put that back in, and you basically build a, a like a closet, a pantry where all this stuff is stored. And you can get the crew inside of it for up to like a day.
0: You build a pantry made of human waste?
3: Uh, uh, well, you put the human
0: waste <laughs> in after you have
3: eaten okay. the food. God. The point is that you have to have this just checking. Uh, material surrounding, you know, a, a certain mass of material just has to surround the crew for the period of time that the solar flare is coming by them. Uh-huh. The other thing you would do is you wouldn't send a mission during solar maximum because that's when the big flares occur.
0: Okay, let's talk about life on other, not planets, but moons uh, in the solar system. Where are you looking and how are you looking? So there are two uh,
3: icy moons of the solar system that are now uh, getting a lot of attention as potentially uh, habitable for life. The two are Europa, which is a moon around Jupiter, and Enceladus, which is a moon around Saturn. Uh, Europa has... um, a liquid water ocean deep under uh, uh, many kilometers, tens of kilometers of ice. Kilometers are roughly uh, two kilometers to a mile. <laughs> um, one and a half,
2: one, one 1.6, yeah. Yeah, one so, point six.
3: so you know many miles, tens of miles, 10 to 20 to maybe even 100 miles of, of ice covers the surface of Europa. But there are um, fractures in that ice. And you can see this, if you look at uh, pictures of the surface of Europa, it's just covered with these fractures. And so uh, it's sitting very close to Jupiter, which is a gigantic planet. It's, it's the biggest planet in the solar system. It has most of the planetary mass of the solar system. And as it orbits Jupiter, it's getting tidally heated and... Um, undoubtedly there are quakes and and, um, faults that that would allow the ice to crack and uh, material from the subsurface to get to the surface. So it's really the subsurface ocean that's of interest as a possible abode for life, mainly because liquid water is the thing that we know all life depends on. And so there is a mission in the planning stages right now, a Europa lander, to go land on Europa and sample this ice and look for any signatures of life.
0: So we aren't really looking for um, an actual microbe. We're looking for evidence they either were there or have been there because we can't really um, take a picture of a microbe. Is that correct? Am I off on that? Well, um,
3: the straw man payload, so when, when NASA designs a mission they start by having a group of scientists meet and come up with a set of objectives and uh and then imagine what would be a payload that would meet those objectives and that is out there in a document the europa um landing site study and uh a science definition team report and landing site study and um the uh the one of the instruments proposed by this science definition team is in fact a microscope um i think that because of where europa is located it's very close in to jupiter it's sitting in its um radiation belts it's because jupiter has a magnetic field it also has very strong radiation belts uh much like the earth does and The surface of Europa is sitting in a very high radiation environment. So anything that gets to the surface, if it is containing life, that life does not survive very long. It is killed very rapidly by the radiation environment. So you could, in fact, probably get a microscope that's good enough that you can image cells or cellular structure. But it's very unlikely that those cells are going to be moving around. Um, and it's really the moving around of cells that gives you the confidence that you're seeing cellular structure and life and not something else.
0: On a more phil- philosophical <laughs> note, you know, what would it mean to you, to scientists, and what do you think it would mean to the inhabitants of Earth if we found life? Actual hard proof that uh, we are not alone, at least us and the microbes share, you know, the solar system. What do you think that would threshold would mean to us Uh, i think people are pretty uh, used to thinking about this
3: kind of stuff and would not it wouldn't be that earth shattering so to speak uh if it's you know microbes found on another planet i think from the science point of view uh the most important thing is understanding its biochemistry because we really have only one example of of life our own and the biochemistry of life might vary enormously, and but it's very difficult for us to think about it because we just don't have any examples other than our own.
0: So we'd have another data point to compare us to, and, and it means that life could have only one way it works, or it could work a whole bunch of different ways. What you're That's saying. right. Well, that would be something to to teach us that we're not... So special, after all. Perhaps there would be some humbling going on. We're speaking with Carol Stoker. She's a planetary scientist from NASA Ames Research Center just over the hill in Mountain View. And we have a few more minutes with her. Um, there's You were talking about some geysers coming out of a, another moon um, off of Saturn. Can you tell us that the story?
2: The, the yeah. moon that sounds like enchiladas <laughs> to me.
0: Or
3: yeah. salad. So uh, there's a tiny little moon around Saturn, It's called Enceladus. And it is um, sending out a vapor cloud of ice, that ice and gas that is coming again. The the planet appears to have a subsurface ocean and the moon. I mean, it's really not a planet at all. It's very, very small. Um, Just as an example, Europa is about the size of Earth's moon. Uh, Enceladus is tiny even by that comparison so um, but it's it's again tidally heated it's sitting very close to Saturn and uh, the Cassini spacecraft which is a spacecraft that's been in orbit around Saturn for
0: more than a decade sending us amazing photographs sending
3: amazing photographs (laughs) discovered that Enceladus was putting out these plumes and there's actually pictures that you can see of, of the gas jets coming out. And they are always there. Or at least they have been always there when Cassini has looked at them. And, um, and very interestingly, the composition of the gases is very suggestive that there could be life in this uh, location. Because there's the, um, the energy sources that would be needed to sustain life... Deep under the surface. Now, we don't actually know that about Europa. We can speculate that it's true. But for Cassini, we actually see those gases in these, in these plume jets. Um, and the specific ones that are of interest are carbon dioxide, hydrogen, and methane. So it turns out life has a process called methanogenesis, where um, bacteria basically combine carbon dioxide with hydrogen and make methane. And so in this, jet, in this um, plume of, of gas, you actually see all three of the ingredients needed to make uh, or that, that life would use to make methane, including the methane. So it's possible that the methane is actually a signature of bio, biological activity um, happening on Enceladus.
0: Wow. Pretty amazing.
2: I guess uh, with ens- <laughs> enchiladas, Enceladus, <laughs> as well as Europa, uh, it, you could say that uh, the reason why th- their interiors are interesting and doing interesting things is, as you already said, they're close to their host planets and so their insides are being kneaded you know k-n-e-a-d like kneading dough uh, <laughs> they're being kneaded by this changing intense gravitational field as they orbit those planets and that's kind of squashing them and unsquashing them and heating them up by that process that that's right what's going on yeah
0: so uh, when is that process going to go forward in seeing if we can get readings off of the gas that's coming out of Enceladus. Is that, that underway right now? Or?
3: Um, no, there actually isn't an, a selected mission right now to uh, investigate life on Enceladus, but there are missions in development in, in, that are being proposed.
0: Fantastic. So, uh, so we, we might see it We might see it in our lifetime, life on Enceladus. So finally, um, just closing thoughts on what do we learn from Mars that we could apply to our Earth's atmosphere? Are we uh, looking toward Mars as what we don't want to end up as? Is that like a cautionary tale about losing all your water in your atmosphere? Well, uh, we're probably not thinking about
3: Mars as a place that that is the the kind of... uh, Fate that Earth would endure, it might very well be more like that of Venus, <laughs> no. kind of gas um, giant.
0: Yeah. Well,
3: no, Venus is our next door neighbor, closer to the sun, and Venus is almost the exact same size of the Earth. Uh, but Venus endured a, a runaway greenhouse, and what happened as a result of that is the entire liquid water uh, inventory um, evaporated and went into a steam atmosphere. And then um, solar uh, ultraviolet radiation broke up the steam particles. The oxygen escaped, uh, or rather the hydrogen escaped. The oxygen combined probably with surface rocks. And uh, what is left behind is a very, very thick atmosphere of carbon dioxide and very hot. I mean, it is hot enough to melt lead on the surface of of Venus. So um, it's... We have kind of on either side of us the, the planet that's in a permanent ice age and the planet that is in a extremely uh, too hot for life. Um, and we're right in the middle. It's kind of the uh, people call it the Goldilocks zone. You know, one is too hot, one is too cold. And Earth is just right.
0: We like it that way. Let's try to keep it that way so we can live here a long time and not end up like either one of those. Well, I want to thank you for coming all the way uh, here from NASA. We really appreciate it. It's been so fascinating to talk to you. If you want to stick around for the phenomenon and um, quiz part, maybe um, Joe can stump you. I doubt it, but, you know, he could try. He has some pretty tough ones that he throws at us. So um, thank you so much, Carol Stoker, for being our guest here on Planet Watch. My pleasure.
2: Yeah, and hopefully you've had fun Carol, and can convince some of your colleagues who, <laughs> who I also know, <laughs> to come on over and to the beach. Uh, hey, well, you know, speaking of Jupiter and uh, Cassini mission to Saturn, uh, the Cassini mission is doing a whole series of. I think this year they're going to do 22. It's a, it's a an orbiter, a human-made orbiter that's now orbiting. It's going to dive between Saturn's innermost ring and the top of the clouds of Saturn, like. 20 22 times this year. And so far, the first two times they went through, they found a a kind of a surprising emptiness. They thought that it would be full of dust, which might kind of screw up the mission. They'd have to be using their antenna as a dust shield, but it's almost... Almost a vacuum in there, uh, or at least way more so than they thought. So that's the preliminary observations from the first two of, you know, some 22 planned dives of the Cassini mission before it finally, this September, dives into Saturn and burns up, uh, telling us, screaming the news that it finds to us as it uh, dies. And now Jupiter, tonight, you got to look in the sky, everybody, everybody in the world listening, Look in the sky tonight. I mean, some of you are already seeing this on the other side of the world, uh, but the moon is going to be right smack next to Jupiter. So if you've ever wondered how you can find a planet in the sky, well, hey, Jupiter is that bright, bright dot right next to the, getting there, almost full moon tonight. By the way, there will be kind of a semi-bright bluish star just below Jupiter. That'll be Spica, S-P-I-C-A, in the constellation Virgo. The Maiden, one of the Zodiac constellations. And, um, well, you know, today is uh, the seventh day of May, May 7th. um, There was a great book that came out in the 60s, back in the time of the Cuban Missile Crisis. Maybe some of you remember it. Well, I don't know, half the people in the room here were not born then. But 1964 action, political action thriller called Seven Days in May. And it uh, was Cold War stuff, Uh, stuff about U.S.-Russia relations. Back then it was called the Soviet Union. But uh, anyway, check that out. Just, you know, see if I I looked at it again recently. I don't think I ever read it. And now I actually, given what's going on now (laughs) with the U.S. and Russia, I'm kind of intrigued to read that again. So seven days in May. Uh, We had a riddle last time. And by the way, I've, I've... Told Carol that hey, since she's such an interesting person doing such interesting work, she should just feel free to chime in with any funny things or riddles of hers. And by the way, all of you listeners out there, send us your riddles and puzzles that you want to stump us and our guests with. Again, radio planetwatch at gmail.com. But there was one a couple weeks ago. Um you know, I've been gone the last two weeks back on the East Coast. Had to get back into this West Coast rhythm of showing up in the studio at 2. Back in Washington, you could go. the show wasn't until 5 p.m. But anyway, uh, one of the riddles, remember, was um, why is a manhole round? Remember? That's kind of where we left off. Why is a manhole round? So, uh, okay, we posed that last time. And uh, I, bet Carol I, th- I can think it's that. time to answer it now. Uh, but, uh, it's you, probably you got the any same idea? reason
0: that a space craft has a round <laughs> portal, but I don't know.
2: I don't want to put Carol in the spot. She's only had two seconds to think about. It has it, to but, do with uh,
0: gravity. Well,
2: yeah, sort kind of. Sorta, yeah, yeah, sort of. Uh, more geometry than gravity, but yeah, but yeah, Lower gravity. Together. Density. <laughs>
0: shapes mm.
2: and and what is in manholes namely you know men usually maybe some women uh, but they are fragile creatures that, that don't we don't I don't know what do you, what do you think Carol are they do you know
0: this person one? Holes now I have to <laughs> <person holes. laughs> I don't think you want to go there but uh, you know to ungenderize a hole in the ground um, okay so. so. Uh,
2: well look you want me to tell her or do you want to tell it? Uh, it's, it's, the, it's the only shape, it's the only shape, or certainly a very simple basic shape that satisfies this condition. It won't fall through itself. In other words, if you have a circular opening in the pavement and a circular lid, as long as there's a little bit of a lip, you know, uh, it's not going to fall through itself. Whereas, say if a manhole was square, it's very possible that, you know, if you're dropping it through with one of the short sides of the square, but you drop it through a diagonal of the square hole, hey, it's going to hit the fragile Parsons. man in the hole. <laughs> so, but a circle won't do that. So there you go. It's one
0: of those <laughs> kind of
2: practical but... things there. Uh-huh. Um, uh,
0: we'll put the city council on renaming those. <laughs> we'll come up with something creative, I'm sure.
2: Yeah, yeah. Um, so... We got any uh, emails in there uh, that uh, we got Tommy on? We had another
1: Mars question, but we were kind of already past Mars. Well, hey, let's do it, because I'm... uh... All right. (laughs) If uh, Mars has been frozen for billions of years, um, how could the sharp topography with deep canyons remain with the huge dust storms that blow across the planet? Which I found to be an interesting question. Mm.
3: That's a good question, actually. Um, The the weight of the evidence is that these water-carved features are, in fact, billions of years old. Um, There uh, is erosion that's going on. It's because of the very thin atmosphere, the erosion is very slow. So the rate that you break something down, you know, if you were to make a Grand Canyon, the rate that you can break it down with little grains of dust. uh, And these little grains of dust, which you see, um, if you saw the movie The Martian, the one thing that was really wrong with that movie was it had these windstorms that were blowing things around and, you know causing rockets to fall over and things like that. Well, the force of the wind on Mars is extremely small. And the reason is that even though the wind speeds might be high, there's very little atmosphere. So the atmosphere density is just not able to put enough force in to move big sand grains or big enough grains that they're going to uh, quickly erode anything. So, so that, yeah. the stuff that's being carried is just very, very fine powder. It's like the consistency of flour.
0: Wow. Right. That does bring up the question, what did you think of that movie? It sounds like you didn't <laughs> like parts of The Martian.
3: I like it a little less now.
0: <laughs> We've been had. Yeah. <laughs> what did you think of that film? Um, uh, well, it was
3: actually a very interesting book. Um, the the uh, evolution of that book is what I think is the more interesting story because basically it was a computer scientist who was writing in his spare time and he was an engineer and he was coming up with engineering problems and then figuring out a way to solve the engineering problems and he was writing it, putting it out online a chapter at a time and he developed a huge following and a a huge number of engineers were giving him suggestions as to how to solve these problems and if you read the book, uh, what you find is it's just this big set of engineering problems, um, yeah. and you know it was dramatized for the movie, and um, you still see a lot of the engineering problems getting solved in the movie. Here's the guy who's had the worst luck, but ends up by himself, and then everything goes wrong. He's cab blows up, die. and <laughs> potatoes die, and and so on, uh, but, and it you know many many parts of it were. Um, Beyond reasonable, you know, in terms of the the degree of disaster that one person could survive, but still, it was. There's been a, a number of interesting films about the sort of idea of the single person marooned on Mars, and there was one in the early uh, '60s called Robinson Crusoe on Mars, and that's one I think is really uh, prophetic because in that movie, and I have a little clip of it. There, the guy has a rock that's yellow, and he's saying. These rocks give off oxygen, and they burn. What What are they? And that's the perchlorate. I mean, Not that's cool. actually how perchlorate
0: behaves. Wow. Don't burn it. Whatever you do, well, you know how you shout at a screen? Don't do it. Hey, you know. <laughs> we'll have to get a clip of that. Um, we're, we're almost just about out of time. Fun, but we, could you send us a clip of that uh, little film, and we'll put it on our Facebook A
2: fun page. contrast. There's that movie Mars Attacks where <laughs> they suddenly look out the window, and they say, Mars, what do you know? <laughs> they just sort of <laughs> drifted by there. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, dear. Yes. It, Hollywood would be nowhere without a little bit of uh, planetary science to right. exploit. Uh, so we'll get that clip up on our Facebook page. And um, next week on Planet Watch, we'll be talking about something fairly earthly. We'll be Talking about fracking for mm. uh, natural gas and how that's become a big thing across the United States, and what local communities um, are doing and have been doing to try to regulate it and control what happens in the local communities. Um, so that's coming up next week on Planet Watch. Which
2: will be which will be Mother's Day, and I'm going to call it Mother Earth's Day because we're trying <laughs> to protect Mother Earth from screwing around with the interior of it.
0: I'm Rachel Ann Goodman. This is Joe Jordan with Tommy Miller, and thank you to Carol Stoker. <laughs> Thanks for listening. This has been Planet Watch.
2: Keep an eye on the sky.